All right, let's get started. Good afternoon uh, and welcome to this webinar. I'm Reese Golubov, the Dean of the Law School, and I'm so glad that you are joining us today. I wanna to thank Becca Nelson and Sarah Sargent and everyone at the Law School Foundation for organizing this event. Uh, it has been what my son would call a bronze lining to the COVID pandemic, not quite silver, but but a good a good thing um, that we have new ways of engaging with alumni online that we didn't used to do. Um, and I'm really glad that these webinars are a chance for us to connect with alumni and for you to connect with the law school and to continue to see the law school as a place of learning and a place where you uh, learn about important, interesting things in the world, which is certainly what you will learn about today. Um, and I'm really glad that you've joined us to hear from Professor Bertrand Ross, who will be discussing participatory inequality between the rich and the poor in the American electoral system. It is my pleasure to introduce Bertrand, who is the Justice Thurgood Marshall Distinguished Professor of Law here at the Law School, uh, as well as one of the directors. He's the co-director of our Karsh Center for Law and Democracy. Bertrand joined the law school's faculty in 2021 from UC Berkeley, where he taught for 11 years, most recently as Chancellor's Professor of Law. Bertrand received his BA from the University of Colorado Boulder and his JD from Yale Law School. And he also holds master's degrees from Princeton University and from the London School of Economics, where he served as a Marshall Scholar. Bertrand is also a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States and recently served on the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. Uh, this is Bertrand's first year teaching at the law school, even though we hired him two years ago because he spent last year in Germany as a fellow of the American Academy in Berlin. Um, but he has already become an integral part of the law school community here. He has quickly built a reputation for being a brilliant, engaged, and energetic colleague and teacher. I'm so thrilled that he's here. His scholarship focuses on democratic responsiveness and accountability, as well as the inclusion of marginalized communities in administrative and political processes. Um, as both a teacher and co-director of the Karsh Center, he recently launched a Designing Democracy project. Um, and as part of that, he is teaching a course that places a core group of students into leadership positions for thinking about and solving democracy's problems. Not a, not a, not a large task at all. Uh, the students examine problems with democratic participation in the US, like voter, low voter turnout, the participation gap among different groups of Americans, and then they seek to create remedial frameworks for these problems that consider both the constitutional and legal limits to proposed remedies, and they think about social science scholarship and data that might reveal potential effectiveness of those remedies. So I am absolutely delighted that he agreed to be here today to talk with you all about the voting gap between wealthy and poor Americans, the sources and consequences of that gap, whether political campaigns address that inequality, and whether the law can provide some solutions. So without further ado, I am delighted to welcome Professor Bertrand Ross. Thank you so much, Dean Galabos, for that really um, welcome and lovely introduction. Um, far more deserving than I than 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 who I am, but I'm so happy to be here. Um, happy to be on this webinar and happy to be with all of you today. Um, as Dean Galabuff mentioned, I'm new to the law school, but um, this law school has already um, captured um, my my heart and joy, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, I actually spent the last week um, visiting old friends in the Bay Area, and um, you know dealing with the challenges of freeway traffic and uh, the difficulties of getting around uh, reminded me of of why I so welcome um, Charlottesville as my home. Um, even though I do complain about bypass traffic, it's really um, a joy. To, to be here in such a lovely place and a lovely community of scholars and colleagues that I have here at the law school. So I very much appreciate being here and the opportunity to be with all of you. Just kind of a little background in terms of who I am and where I'm coming from before leading off um, my remarks. I, I come from a, in terms of background, um, beyond what um, Dean Golubov mentioned, I am from a working class family um, who grew up in a and uh, pretty much all around Southern California. Um, we started off um, on the western edge of Los Angeles and kept moving progressively east um, through California as rents became more expensive. Um, we were you know, a family of, of, of folks who were very tight knit, um, but um, dealt with many economic challenges in our life and in our lives. And that background has really informed my existence as a scholar, as I think about things through the lens of my own working class background. And I was 
pretty much captured by this um, idea of political inequality when thinking about the 2000 election and seeing um, for me the first time, for me it was the first time um, noting the effects of felon disenfranchisement laws, not merely on the um, elections, but election potentially, the presidential election of 2000, but also on the lives of those who sought to participate in the election. So I spent a couple of years, uh, a, 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 some time in Florida um, working with folks who were trying to get their rights to vote back, individuals with felony convictions. And that really highlighted to me um, the importance and value of the vote to individuals who are denied the vote. And that set me on the path towards thinking about these issues, um, both as you know an advocate for a short period of time, but mostly as an ac academic and and returning somewhat to that advocacy role as director, co-director of the Kerr Center, and as um, uh, the director of this Designing Democracy project. Um, today, I want to present to you um, a co-authored um, idea um, with Douglas Spencer, who's a professor at the University of Colorado, and we were together at UC Berkeley when he was um, pursuing his PhD at the Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program at, at UC Berkeley while I was a faculty member there. He's a social scientist and a law professor, and I think we have really benefited each other with the sharing of ideas on this particular project. What he brings to it is not only sort of ideas relevant to the project, but also a, a, a strong empirical background and methodology um, that we um, leverage to try to understand the sources of the problem of political inequality and think about remedies. So that's kind of the background of where I am. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of lead into to the more prepared remarks part of, part of the, the webinar. So on July 10th, 2012, Attorney General Eric Holder gave a speech at the annual convention for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. In the year leading up to the speech, seven states had made moves to adopt strict photo ID requirements for voting. Republicans who controlled every state legislature that adopted voter ID laws justified them on the basis of mostly unsubstantiated assertions of voter impersonation fraud and real concerns about the perception of fraud that defenders of voter ID laws said undermine the integrity of elections. The day before Holder's speech, a trial began in federal district court where the state of Texas was seeking a declaratory judgment against the Department of Justice to secure pre-approval for its voter ID law under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. In his speech, Holder referred to the Justice Department's findings that the Texas voter ID law would be harmful to minority voters. Holder noted how under the proposed law, concealed handgun licenses would be acceptable, acceptable forms of photo ID, but student IDs would not. As he described how many of those without IDs would have to travel great distances to get them, and some would struggle to pay for the documents they might need to obtain them, in an unscripted part of his speech, Holder announced, we call those poll taxes. This was not the first time that someone drew the analogy between voter ID laws and poll taxes, between current voter suppression tools in the past, nor would it be the last. But the analogy was particularly noteworthy coming from the chief law enforcement officer of the United States and the closest cabinet member to President Barack Obama. As a result, Holder's speech and his analogy between voter ID laws and poll taxes drew considerable attention. Conservatives expressed outrage about the analogy. A Wall Street Journal editorial accused Holder of playing the race card to drive up black turnout in a presidential election only five months away. Many liberals applauded the attorney general repeated the analogy describing voter ID laws as modern day poll taxes and literacy tests. In some respects, the analogy between new and old voter suppression makes sense. The new voter suppression, like the old, has its, has its goal and effect partisan political advantage. In the post-Reconstruction Redemption period, Democrats used the old voter suppression tools to secure partisan advantage over Republicans and populists, just as Republicans more recently have sought to use voter suppression tools to secure partisan advantage over Democrats. But in a critical other respect overlooked by many who rely on the analogy, the old voter suppression tools, old voter suppression is quite different from the new. The old voter suppression involved the effective disenfranchisement of an entire class of voters. The post-redemption era cumulative poll taxes, literacy and understanding tests, white primaries, balanced franchisement laws, and other legal devices reduced Black voter registration and voting to a level where Blacks could not exercise any influence over elections or secure any representation in the political process. Those older vo old voter suppression tools imposed a nearly impossible to surmount barrier for African-American voting and effectively disfranchised African-Americans until the adoption of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. 
Although there is certainly evidence that some proponents of the new voter suppression are motivated by racism and perhaps would not mind at all if African-Americans and other racial minorities were effectively disfranchised, the new voter suppression tools have not come close to disfranchising an entire class of citizens. If we focus on racial minorities who are at the center of the public debate and legal controversy surrounding the new voter suppression laws, we see that the laws have had only a marginal effect on turnout when compared to the old voter suppression tools. This distinction between the new and old voter suppression is not meant to condone voter ID laws or any of the other voter suppression tools. It is also not meant to dismiss their effects as barriers to voting for the non-trivial number of people who cannot afford the costs associated with acquiring a photo ID or are hurt by the reduction in voting days or are purged from voter rolls. And finally, it is not meant to distract from my full agreement with the claim that the denial, denial of the vote to anyone is a democratic harm that should be unacceptable in a self-governing republic. Instead, the point here is to illustrate an important distinction between the old and new voter suppression in hopes of shining a light on something that the analogy between the old and new voter suppression unintentionally masks, the effective disfranchisement of the poor. In one important respect, the poor are similarly situated to African Americans in the South following the adoption of the old voter suppression tools. The turnout of the poor is at such a low level that they do not influence election outcomes and they are unable to secure responsiveness to their interests in the political process. This, for us, is a definition of effective disfranchisement, and we think it represents one of the greatest defects in our system of representative government today. Turning to the census data, there was a 30% reported turnout gap between persons in the top income quintile and persons in the lowest income quintile in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. Such a large turnout gap might seem to provide some supportive evidence for the claim that the new voter suppression laws, like the old, are effectively disfranchising a group of voters. But a problem with this conclusion arises when we look to turnout data from elections preceding the recent spate of voter suppression laws. For example, in the 2004 presidential election, the last presidential election before Indiana and Georgia became the first states to require voter IDs to, to vote, the turnout gap between the rich and poor was actually higher than it was in 2016, when strict photo ID laws were in place in eight, eight states. In fact, a persistent 25 to 35% gap in turnout between the highest and lowest income quintiles has persisted since the census started collecting um, reported voting data by income classes in 1964. Preliminary results from our statistical analysis confirm that voter ID laws have only a minor effect on turnout by the poor, which is consistent with other empirical findings as well. Thus, while voting rights advocates and democracy scholars have identified the new voter suppression as a voting rights issue of our times, it is perhaps less important than is conventionally assumed when it comes to non-voting by the poor. This non-voting by the poor matters because it is correlated with the complete non-representation of the poor in the political process. Political scientists Martin Gillens and Larry Bartles and others have found that elected officials are completely unresponsive to the unique needs and preferences of the poor. So why do the poor not vote? We argue that to understand this, lawyers, legal scholars, and policymakers need to deepen their theoretical understanding of voting and the barriers to voting. To the extent that there is a theory of voting in legal scholarship, it is an implicit one that focuses on tangible cost barriers to voting as a primary determinant of voting. While we do not dispute the relationship between tangible cost barriers such as poll taxes, literacy tests, and voter ID laws in voting, we argue that the focus on tangible cost barriers ignores other factors relevant to the voting decision that better explain the effective disfranchisement of the poor. Rational choice and sociological theories of voting open up a host of additional explanations for why the poor disproportionately do not vote. In rational choice theories, information and the cost of such information is a critical determinant of voting. In order to vote, individuals need basic logistical information about where, when, and how to vote. More importantly, to vote rationally, individuals need information about the difference between candidates and how those differences might be relevant to their own well-being. To be able to differentiate between candidates, potential voters need to be informed about the candidates' past actions, policy proposals for the future, and how divergences between the candidates across multiple policy dimensions will differentially impact their well-being. Rational choice theory also identifies a person's degree of affiliation with formal organizations as another factor that influences turnout. Formal organizations, which include unions, churches, or professional associations, can positively influence the turnout of their members by providing members with the tailored information that they need to differentiate between the candidates and relate those differences to their own well-being. Sociological theories have also found that formal organizations can instill within its members a sense of duty to vote, particularly when the formal association stands to benefit from the election of one candidate over the other. 
Finally, integration into social networks of politically interested individuals is another factor found by sociological theories to influence the decision to vote. Like formal organizations, social networks of politically interested individuals provide members of these networks with valuable information that informs members' voting decisions. Perhaps more importantly, social networks are also the source of social norms that embed within members of the network a sense of duty to vote. In terms of information, formal organizational affiliation and integration into social networks of politically interested individuals, the poor are at a disadvantage relative to members of other socioeconomic classes. As a general matter, the poor bear heavier information cost of voting because the poor tend to have lower educational attainment. A consistent finding in the empirical literature is a strongly positive relationship between education and voting. The more educated a person is, the more likely they are to vote. And the reason for this relationship, consistent with rational choice theory, is more education lowers the information acquisition and processing costs. Those with more education tend to know more about where to find sources of information relevant to the voting decision and to have an easier time processing such information due to the background knowledge acquired through schooling. The poor also are also less likely to be affiliated with formal organizations. With the exception of churches, most formal associations such as unions and professional associations exclude those without jobs or professional affiliations who are more likely to be poor. Finally, the socioeconomic class homophilia of social networks combined with the poor's lower educational attainment and their exclusion from most formal associations leads to a dynamic where the poor are often isolated from social networks that include politically interested individuals. Empirical studies have found that differences between the rich and the poor in information acquisition and processing costs, affiliation with formal organizations and integration into social networks contributes far more to the rich-poor turnout disparity than the tangible costs of voting. Now that we've identified the more important sources of turnout disparities, the question then is what can be done to ameliorate these sources of disparity? First best solutions might include improving educational opportunities for the poor and providing the poor with the necessary job opportunities, time, and resources to integrate themselves into formal organizations and social networks. But these first best solutions appear unrealistic in the current political context, where there is, appears to be little political will for massive public investment into poor communities. We must therefore look to second best solutions to redress the rich-poor turnout disparity. To identify those second best solutions, it is important to understand the critical role of political parties' mobilization activities in individual decisions to vote. Political parties' door-to-door -door canvassing and phone banking positively influence the voting decision in two ways. First, campaigns through their mobilization activities provide potential voters with information, sometimes tailored information, that help them differentiate between candidates and relate those differences to their well-being. Second, campaigns through their mobilization activities impart within individuals a sense of duty to vote. Experimental studies show that campaigns are quite successful in positively influencing the vote decision. According to a series of studies, door-to-door -door canvassing increases turnout by 7 to 10%, and quality phone banking that is more tailored to the audience increases turnout by up to 5%. And it's not only those direct mobilization effects that matter. Other experimental studies show that mobilization has a contagion effect in that it indirectly mobilizes those in the social network of the contacted persons. One study found that this contagion effect increases the probability of turnout for live-in partners by about 60%. Although campaigns have a positive effect on turnout, their activities have likely only exacerbated the turnout disparities between the rich and the poor. Campaigns are subject to budget constraints that are equal to the sum of the contributions received from donors and whatever the candidate contributes from his or her own wealth. Those budget constraints prevent campaigns from contacting everyone. Campaigns therefore seek to use their money efficiently to mobilize as many favorable votes as possible in hopes that those votes will be enough to win the election. To most efficiently use their money, Campaigns employ what we label a calculus of contact as a tool to efficiently use their money. In this calculus of contact, campaigns decide who to contact by assessing the probability that the individual will vote as a result of that contact and the probability that that individual will vote favorably for the candidate. In employing this calculus of contact, the campaigns use a variety of mobilization strategies depending on electoral context. These strategies range from a base mobilization strategy in which they focus their energy on contacting moderately frequent to frequent voters who are highly likely to support their candidate, or a conversion mobilization strategy in which they target moderately frequent to frequent voters that range from being undecided to weakly supportive of either candidate. A consistent element in, in most campaign mobilization strategies is the inattention to infrequent voters who do not have much of a voting history. 
Campaigns tend to avoid these individuals on the basis of a prediction that they are less likely to vote if contacted and due to uncertainty about probabilities related to how they might vote if contacted. The tendency to avoid infrequent voters is reflected in a series of heat maps I'll show you right now. So what these heat maps show is um, the likelihood that individuals would be voted uh, or contacted by a particular campaign. And what we're looking for is um, the likelihood that individuals will be contacted by a campaign, which is determined by um, the color on the map. Dark red represents the least contacts and dark green the most contacts. And what, we'll see, what we see, and I'll discuss this shortly with respect to changes in strategy over time, is that um, in 2004, during the Curry Kerry campaign, in which there was this uh, uh, canvassing of individuals that was a little bit more random and not, not as focused on high likely and frequent voters, um, there's a bit of a spread in terms of who was contacted. But you do notice that there is still a notable distinction in terms of the lower turnout voters who tend to have more red in their space, which is at the top end of each of those graphs. Even in 2004 and going to 2008, as campaigns become more sophisticated, they become more effective, more um, inclined to avoid those low turnout voters. And those low turnout voters tend to be poor voters. And we can see this also reflect in a contact gap that has emerged between wealthier and poor voters. And this is looking at um, the, the gap, um, the, the, the probability um, um, that's set forth in this graph is looking at the differential um, in contact between the highest and lowest income quintile voters. We'll see that prior um, to the 2000 election, when, there, when canvassing wasn't as prominent, when at campaigns were relying very much still on television advertisement and weren't doing the get out the vote efforts that we see more so in the current day, there was still a contact gap. Um, and the contact gap was, was still um, 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 prominent, but it would even grow more so as campaigns started to engage in more canvassing activities and became more sophisticated in their canvassing activities. So we see in looking to the around the 2004 and 2006 election, the campaign contact gap looks pretty similar to what it did before 2000. But as you see greater sophistication in the campaigns and their canvassing activities being more targeted towards um, um, those high probability voters, um, you see the can campaign contact gap rise. And the importance of this is goes back to a point I just made in that canvassing and contact has a an effect on turnout in that those who are contacted are seven to 10 percent more likely to turn out. And so that means that those that are not contacted will suffer the, the, the consequences in the sense that they won't get the information that has proven valuable in the turnout decision of voters. Okay. So the the so. Um, So we argue ultimately that the disparity in turnout can be reduced if we can find a way to combat um, voter, what we describe as a passive form of voter suppression arising from the decision of political campaigns to, to neglect low turnout voters in their campaign mobilization efforts. And we argue that a key to com com combating campaign-driven voter suppression is by changing campaigns information environment. What we mean by this is that we need to change what information is available to campaigns when they're assessing probabilities in their calculus of contact. Now, there are at least three possible strategies for changing campaign information environments. The first step strategy is to make less information about potential voters available to campaigns. This strategy seeks to be responsive to campaigns' use of micro-targeting, in which they collect tons of information about potential voters from the state and private data vendors to construct more precise predictive measures of probabilities and use those measures to decide who to contact. Prior to 2008, geographic precinct mobilization was a dominant campaign mobilization strategy. Under this geographic precinct mobilization, campaigns would decide on which precincts to canvas on the basis of aggregate turnout and voting data and try to contact everyone in that precinct. And a precinct is basically um, a, a more formal um, term for neighborhood. So they would go and they would identify those neighborhoods that tend to have higher turnout um, within those in those neighborhoods, but they would contact everyone in those neighborhoods, which would inevitably include some individuals who did not turn out very much in elections. 
But since 2008, micro-targeting has emerged as a newly dominant mobilization strategy in which campaigns more selectively target specific households and even people within households in their canvassing activities. The 2004 campaign in Ohio engaged in a more geographic precinct mobilization, um, which consistent with that heat map led to a much more diffuse and random spread of contact um, amongst different types of voters. But you see in 2012, eight in 2012, there's a slow shift towards micro-targeting. And in 2012 election in particular, Obama was, uh, the Obama campaign was very aggressive in, in their use of micro-targeting um, strategy. And what that led to was a contact strategy that explicitly and specifically omitted um, omitted predominantly the poor and low turnout voters from um, from the canvassing um, um, from canvassing activities. So if the state imposed restrictions on what information campaigns can receive from both the state and data vendors, it could constrain the ability of campaigns to microtarget. The problem, however, with this strategy is that it will likely result in campaigns shifting to geographic precinct mobilization based on the turnout rates of neighborhoods. While this strategy of geographic precinct uh, mobilization leads to less income-based disparities in contact than micro-targeting, targeting, substantial disparities would still remain. So a second strategy is making more information about potential voters available. States can make more information available to campaigns through the adoption of an automatic voter registration system. Under the most common automatic voter registration system, persons are automatically registered to vote whenever they come into contact with an agency excuse me, designated by the state. The state then sends the individual a letter, providing the person with the opportunity to opt out of the voter registration. The letter also provides the individual with an opportunity to express their party preferences. In order for an automatic voter registration system to improve the information available to campaigns in a way that might incentivize them to contact poor voters, it is critical that the state obtain as much information about individuals' party preferences as possible. This may require the state to be more proactive in sending a letter. It may instead require the state to contact individuals by phone or even engage in door-to-door -door contact to collect information about the partisan preferences of newly registered voters. In this fuller information environment, in which campaigns have more information about the partisan preferences of low turnout voters, they face less uncertainty about how they might vote if contacted, which may increase campaigns' incentives to contact these individuals. But there's still a problem, the problem of campaigns knowing individuals' voting histories, which may lead campaigns to continue to focus their energies on frequent voters because of, of doubts about whether infrequent voters will vote at all if contacted. So a third strategy then is to make information both more and less available. States could try to make more information available about individuals' partisan preferences through the automatic voter registration system I just described, and then deny to campaigns information about individuals' voting histories. One shortcut that campaigns use to assess voting histories, the registration status of individuals, will be mostly taken away by the automatic voter registration system. And then it is only a matter of denying to campaigns disaggregated information about whether individuals voted in past elections that could ultimately incentivize the campaigns to contact those um, low turnout voters. Some campaigns may respond to this information environment by engaging in more geographic precinct-based mobilization. But from a mobilization strategy perspective, it might make more sense to micro-target on the basis of individuals' partisan preferences, even without information about individuals' voting history. And this micro-targeting on the basis of individuals' partisan preferences could lead to a more even distribution of contact across low, medium, and high turnout voters. Now, in our broader project, we plan to test the effects of these three different information environments on the campaign contact gap to assess whether any of the information environments might be correlated or if we can secure the necessary data, might actually have a causal effect on the campaign contact gap. Now, I've talked a lot about the disparity of turnout between the rich and the poor, and the problem that's raised by turnout gap is not just simply um, the lack of representation that, that might result that, that is correlated with the lack of participation by um, low-income voters, but there's a problem for society as well. I think that those who are alienated and marginalized from the democratic process are more vulnerable to being recruited by anti-democratic forces in any society. We've seen this internationally and throughout history in which anti-democratic individuals have risen to power on the basis of recruiting for support those who have been alienated and marginalized from the democratic process. 
So to preserve democracy and to preserve um, uh, and to, to maintain and preserve and seek to advance democracy, I think a key goal should be the integration of low-income voters in the political process. And the first step towards integration of low-income voters in the political process is increasing their participation in the political process. And that involves giving them a reason to vote, giving them a sense of why the vote matter, why their vote matters and how the vote might be beneficial to their own well-being. So I'll conclude there and I'll turn it over to Ben Segarra, who will um, act as a moderator, um, taking in questions. Thank you so much, Professor Ross. That was fascinating. Uh, my name is Ben Segarra, and I'm a class of 2008 graduate of the law school uh, and the associate director of annual giving here at the Law School Foundation. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to read some of the questions of you all to Professor Ross. Uh, remember, you can ask further questions by clicking on the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, uh, and then that'll pop up on my screen, and we'll get to just as many questions as we can. Our first question is from Keith Cole. Professor Keith asks, can you disaggregate the participation gap among active suppression, suppression as an unintended consequence, and voter apathy? Yeah, it's really hard to disaggregate that. And I don't think studies have been able to do so thus far. I think what we've seen um, in terms of the study of active voter suppression, and I take that to mean um, things like voter ID laws, things like um, limits on absentee voting, maybe a limits on early voting and such, is that that has had minimal effects on infrequent low propensity voters who tend to be tend to be more lower income voters. Um, the reason being is that you know, or a study such surmises that that's not the principal barrier. That's not the reason people are not voting. Yes, it does impose a cost, um, these active voter suppression tools, um, but there are other reasons that are much more important to the voting decision and the reasons that individuals do not vote. And I think that it keys into the last point in terms of apathy. And I think that this apathy arises from um, the sense that neither political party is that attentive to the interests or needs of low-income voters. They don't see perhaps their issues on the agenda, especially to the extent that they impact their economic well-being. Um, that's why perhaps you see low-income voters, to the extent that they are engaged in the political process, they're focused more on the culture issues because those are the issues that are on, on the agenda that they see as being relevant to their own well-being. But to the extent that they feel themselves to be ignored in the political process by political actors, right? They many don't feel the need or necessity of voting because they don't think it will make much of a difference in in their own well-being, and that ultimately feeds into a bit of a vicious circle. Um, and that vicious circle is one in which, um, because political politicians aren't responsive to the needs and, and preferences and wants of low-income voters, they tend not to vote. And and and, and because they tend not to vote, um, um, politicians tend to be less responsive to their needs. And the question is, how do we sort of break through this vicious circle? How do we create a more virtuous circle in which greater participation by low-income voters leads to greater responsiveness and so on and so forth? So I think apathy is a, is a huge explaining factor. I don't know if I could parse it out in terms of, of quantum Identifying, you know, what percentage can account for that. Um, but I think that it's a, it's a major component of this participation gap that we need to be attentive to. Thank you, Professor. Okay, we have another question. This one is from Wilson DuBose, who asks, is there solid evidence that lower income voters are prevented from voting in certain jurisdictions? And if not, then where is the suppression? If so, what is the evidence other than citizens exercising their free will? Yeah, I mean, the barriers that exist with respect to voting are real and they do exist. Um, you know, voter ID laws do require that you obtain a photo ID in some way. Um, states do are, are making efforts that uh, states have adopted photo ID laws have made it some have tried to make it easier to obtain these photo ID laws. Um, there's still a cost in which you have to present identification data to get the photo ID laws, such as a birth certificate or something along those lines, which can be costly depending on, on, on you know, um, depending on where you have to obtain it from and, and your own economic position. So, I mean, I think that these are real um, costs that low-income voters um, 
face when going to the polls with respect to the requirement of photo ID, photo IDs. But again, like I said in response to the earlier question, I don't think that this is the principal um, source of voter suppression. I think it's a source, but I don't think it's the principal one. Where the voter suppression is coming in is um, both in the form of information that's being denied to these individuals because campaigns choose not to reach out to them. And it's also due to the fact that there is um, the information that they're receiving is full of, of inaccuracies. And there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And that misinformation and disinformation can have a suppression effect as well um, by um, confusing um, the individual because they don't really understand how to sort of separate out um, fact from fiction and the distorted information may confuse them as to which individual or candidate or party will best represent their interests. And it could also lead them to voting, you know, potentially against their interests because they rely on on a bit of information that's not particularly accurate that suggests that a particular candidate or party will best advance their well-being, and that ends up being not the case. And when that's not the case, they perhaps become more marginalized and alienated from political process, um, seeing that their vote perhaps didn't make a difference in terms of improving the lives of themselves or members of their communities and such. Um, and they also just, you know, with respect to suppression effects of lack of information not necessarily having a full sense of how the system works, who is responsible um, for a set of policies, who has the authority to pass a set of policies that would be relevant to their well-being, uh, at which level of government do these policies operate. And so I think that this is a broader concern about um, civic education that's lacking in this country, that political parties and nonprofit groups that are engaging and get off the vote efforts can make up partially. Um, but I think there's a deeper, deeper fundamental concern about um, um, lack of civic education and how that contributes to the effectiveness of misinformation campaigns. I think that's a very comprehensive answer. Thank you, Professor. Uh, I agree. Uh, next, we have a question from Guerino Calimine, who asks, even with more information about low-income voters, there remain logistical challenges to contacting them. Poor people tend to move around a lot, addresses go bad within a year. Poor people tend to live in places with difficult access for outsiders, like apartment buildings or trailer parks, and it can be a challenge to find volunteers willing to go into poorer areas for fear of crime. Indeed, frequent changes in address lead to challenges as to their eligibility, return to sender postcard tests, examples. Uh, how do campaigns solve for those living situation problems when trying to make contacts? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And it's been the challenge that campaigns who have tried to make efforts to contact in the poor have have engaged, have 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 faced. Um, for example, if you look to um campaigns in in Georgia um, that have been more focused than other campaigns elsewhere on contacting low-income voters, particularly in the Atlanta Fulton County area, they have faced the challenges of apartment buildings for which access is limited um, um, and other sort of barriers to entry where low-income individuals tend to live. Um, so I, I think that one of the ways to overcome this is expand the horizon of, of, of places of contact. So, you know, it's certainly perhaps most effective to identify individuals where they are in terms of addresses that are accurate and which you could contact them directly, but to the extent that you don't have that information, there is still a sense that there are neighborhoods and communities that are, you know, we have economic segregation by neighborhood, and there are certainly low-income neighborhoods in which there could be greater efforts to um, contact individuals in that neighborhood, even accounting for the fact that there may be some frequent voters that you're contacting as well. So I think about my time in Philadelphia during the 2004 campaign, in which I was, um, you know, tasked with contacting individuals um, in in a neighborhood surrounding Temple University um, that was on the lower income edge, and certainly there were um, barriers to contacting certain individuals, and sometimes you would um, have to just kind of wait outside the apartment complex to to um, to to, um, to speak to anyone, and sometimes and often they would ignore you, but those are the efforts that might be necessary to to make the effort you may
may not have the easy route of going door to door. So therefore it's gonna be more costly in terms of time and effort to contact these individuals. Another thing I'll say is like trying to identify who are the leaders in these communities, because the leaders in the communities can be an access point, an important access point to other members of the communities. It could be church leaders, it could be other leaders of the community um, that you contact and you develop relationships with, and um, that could perhaps help and support your effort in terms of getting information to these individual voters um, that may be harder to contact because of access limits. So I think that there are ways of course, again, it's much more resource and time intensive, which is why campaigns typically don't want to do this work because they want to use their money as efficiently as possible. But I think that we have to um, have to subordinate efficiency for equity concerns um, to make those efforts to contact these low-income individuals. Thank you, Professor. The next question we have is from Stuart Schwartz, who asks, uh, who asks a question regarding the impact of racial and partisan gerrymandering in discouraging turnout and contributing to voter suppression actions by legislators. Mm -hmm. And so what role does gerrymandering play in discouraging voting? Yeah, I mean, that goes to the question, you know, one of the things that rational choice theory of voting really focused on was um, the benefit side of voting. And there's kind of the benefit side in which you um, um, derive the benefits from favorable policies that are passed by your favorite candidate that's voting into office. Um, and certainly that's an important benefit that could be received by a voter. But there's also the benefit of knowing that your vote or sensing that your vote might matter. And that sense of your vote mattering arises from competitiveness of elections. And so to the extent that the election is closer, um, maybe you have a greater sense of the efficacy of your vote, and maybe that makes you more inclined to vote. But what we know with gerrymandering efforts is that, you know, one aspect of gerrymandering, I mean, there's two, there's multiple forms of gerrymandering, but one form of gerrymandering is designed to reduce the competitiveness of election. This is, you know, kind of the bipartisan sweetheart gerrymander, gerrymander as described by legal and scholars and political scientists, in which um, the parties carve out districts um, that are highly uncompetitive, uncompetitive to protect incumbents. Um, and the deal is made between legislators to do this so that the incumbents could be protected in office. And so that result will be less competitive elections, the sense that no matter who I vote for or how often I vote in every election, that it just won't matter. It's already predetermined who will win or not. So yes, I think that the structural dimensions that are related to voting are a part of the, the challenge, and those have to be addressed as well. And it's one of those, you know, perhaps chicken and the egg issues in the sense that can you get people to vote when they don't have a sense that their vote matters and then, but you need those people to vote in order to support those individuals in office and prevent them or to at least disincentivize them from engaging in this anti-competitive political behavior. So yes, I think that the structural dimensions and participatory aspects of voting are linked um, very closely together. Um, and, um, and, and perhaps it's the case that one can't be solved without the other. Thank you, Professor. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from David Greenberg, who says, in terms of voter integrity, in your opinion, what are the appropriate forms of voter identification? Yeah, so voter integrity is um, is an important, I think it's important in order to maintain trust in the political process. And what we have right now is a, is a trust in the political process seems to be at a very low point. I won't say all time low. I haven't lived throughout American democracy, democratic history. I don't know it well enough to to make that art, to make that claim. But it seems to be at a very low point. And I think that that um, has been that sense of lack of trust has been fed um, by this idea that you know there is fraud happening at um, in elections. There isn't much evidence of, of fraud at elections. Is there some fraud? Sure, but is there widespread fraud? Um, no, certainly not, or no studies have found um, any sense of widespread fraud, but the perception of fraud, the perception that um, elections lack integrity is important to counter. The challenge is that you know much of this um, perception is driven by um, misinformation campaigns, um, which create and feed into the sense that these elections lack integrity. 
But at the same time, how can we counter it? I do think that to the extent that you um, require forms of ID, um, but provide it in a very easily accessible way um, that's free of charge, I think that that would be an important step towards at least countering the perception um, that the, the elections are um, infused or, or fueled by fraud. Um, at least it would counter the idea that in-person impersonation fraud is rampant, um, which is which it is not. And so I I I, I come to um, to sort of agreement with the idea with that idea because of the need to counter that perception. And so the form of ID would be a form of photo ID that would be available and freely accessible to any individual um, who, who, who seeks to access one and um, to um, allow for that at the polls um, as a way to counter sort of those perceptions. I, I, I wish that we didn't have to get to that point um, because I think that you know those states that only require a signature um, to vote and those states that perhaps require less than a photo ID to vote, um, there hasn't been widespread fraud in any of those states, but the perception is so strong that we need some policy intervention to counter it. Well said, Professor. Um, we have another question uh, from Meredith uh, Havasi. She says, your focus seems to be on political campaigns helping to increase the turnout of low-income voters. What about the role of nonpartisan get out the vote organizations or other interest groups like the NAACP or similar organizations? Yeah, that's a great question, Meredith. Um, what I'll say is that the reason why we're focusing on political campaigns is because that's where the money is. You know, campaigns are much more flush with funds to engage in canvassing activities than these nonprofit groups tend to be. But that's not to discount the role of nonprofit groups. Nonprofit groups play an important role. And, and in Georgia, they played a very important role towards this effort of, of, of mobilizing low-income voters. So I think that they are certainly part of the solution um, for sure. Um, but the reason why we think that political parties have to be a critical component as well is because just, they just have so much more money to engage in these canvassing activities. So therefore, they can reach a broad, much broader set of voters um, than nonprofit groups can. Thank you, Professor. Our next question, and we just have a few more here, are, is from Edward Morrison. Uh, Edward asks, imagine we significantly, significantly close the 30% turnout gap. What does success look like? What would we be doing differently at local, state, and federal levels? Take us to this future and describe what you see. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's kind of hard to kind of think about that counterfactual. Um, but I guess I will look to history in which the turnout gap, um, at least based on the numbers available, then wasn't as large um, between the wealthy and poor white voters, at least. Um, and this was at the turn of the century between the 18th and 19th century. Um, this was a period in which you did have economic policies that were um, quite favorable to corporations, but you also had politicians that um, engaged in populist forms of politics, at least on the campaign trail, um, seeking to um, engage or understand or promote the interests that, that they felt that their voters had, which represented a, a broader spread of the socioeconomic class of Americans um, than perhaps today. And so what that looked like were, you know, some policy interventions that were directed towards limiting corporate power, although corporations countered with the use of campaign finance funding to support candidates in ways that led those candidates to favor the corporations. But you at least had a more even playing ground between sort of the wealthy corporate interests and perhaps the low-income individuals that stood to be exploited by the activities of those corporations. Um, and so um, I think that what the future might look like is not one in which um, low-income voters will have all their interests served um, in the political process. I think that that 
you know, is 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 pretty unrealistic to expect um, because I think that, you know, campaign finance will continue to play a role and will continue to influence politicians and politicians will be responsive and continue to be responsive to money. But votes ultimately determine who gets elected to office. And I think that politicians will need to be more responsive to low-income voters, at least in the agenda that they put forth. And, and to the extent that, um, you know, welfare programs are on the table, Right. There might be a concern uh, that they'll lose votes if they decide to decimate the welfare programs that are protecting low income voters, such as Medicaid um, um, and, and other similar types of programs. Um, you can see this with respect to Medicare and Social Security um, with respect to older voters. And that's perhaps the example um, that could be played out if you have more low income voters that are participants in the system. Low income voters are able to protect um, um, the government policies that advance their interests and perhaps even get more of their uh, policies that promote their interests on the agenda. Thank you, Professor. Mm -hmm. Looks like we have time for one last question. Mm -hmm. And this, this question is from James Stewart Schultz, uh, who asked you to take note of Professor Heather Cox Richardson's post on March 5th about President Biden's participation in the commemoration of Bloody Sunday. Uh, there, Professor Richardson made some connections uh, that are pertinent to the question. The question is, how would you draw the lines of connection to voter suppression in the Jim Crow era and how we can communicate this to the public, especially to white Americans? Yeah, I think the important lessons for me in terms of Jim Crow is not necessarily the mechanisms of voter suppression. I think that they are profoundly different um, between the past and the present. But I do think that one of the things that can be drawn from the Jim Crow era is what happens to American democracy when there is a huge disparity in who can vote. And what I think happens with American democracy when there's a huge disparity is that it doesn't function as a democracy. It functions as a as a as a as an instrument or as an set of institutions that favor certain segments of Americans over others. And in the short term, you might not see the consequences of that. You might just see the fact that you know black individuals are just not represented in the political process. Um, perhaps they're being suppressed. They are um, being violently subjugated. They are being subordinated and. For for perhaps white Americans or for some white Americans, um, that's that's not a problem for them. It perhaps reflects poorly on American society, but it's it's not felt as a, a problem for them. And we may feel that way a bit right now in terms of thinking about low-income voters, right? They don't necessarily, um, you know, they, they, they do suffer sort of subjugation and violence in, in different ways that are not a little bit more insidious um, than what we saw in the past. And um, and and the result and the consequences of that is, is not only a democracy that's not functioning, but I think that more so today than perhaps ever, it's a democracy under threat. A democracy that um, stands to um, that that is as as threatened by again those um, anti-democratic forces that are available to recruit those who are marginalized and alienated from the political process. It it contributes to the vulnerability of the political process. The reaction of the of African Americans who were excluded from political proce process was um, to to. to protests and to engage in a movement um, designed to protect and advance their rights. And um, some of the movement actors were nonviolent, and some of them were much more proactive in promoting of violence, right? And ultimately, we were able to secure the passage of, of laws that sought to advance the civil rights of African Americans. And we certainly haven't come the full way of protecting the rights of African Americans in current society, but we made some steps in the right direction. What we see right now is perhaps um, low-income voters will be quiescent. Maybe they'll just stay home. Maybe they'll just kind of, you know, accept their plight, or maybe they won't be. Maybe they'll be part of a violent upheaval that could disrupt um, American democracy if they are not integrated into the political process in the way that they should be um, in any um, true form of democracy. Thank you, Professor Bertrell Ross. That was a fascinating talk, and thank you so much for your time and answering these questions. Uh, thank you all for taking the time to join us today. The Law School Alumni Association and the Law School Foundation work hard to keep alumni connected to the law school and to one another. Uh, and to stay up to date with alumni programming, uh, please visit law.virginia.edu slash alumni. And we hope to see you soon.
again, Professor, thank you all very much. And I hope you all have a great day. Thanks so much, Ben. And thank you, everyone, for joining me.